Oh, well, good evening. It's oh, good evening. It's uh, great to uh, great to see you tonight. Uh, my name's uh, my name's Kevin, and we're going to be looking together at uh, that reading from the book of Judges. So it'd be great if you could keep uh, that open before you. Uh, now, if you want to jot down an outline uh, on your uh, piece of paper, there's two parts. Uh, part one, the end of Gideon, chapter eight, twenty-two to thirty-two, and then part two, the rise of Abimelech uh, in chapter nine. That's kind of the two parts of uh, where we're going uh, tonight. Uh, but as we start, let's uh, again pray and ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet together tonight as your people. Father, we, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it. Father, may it point us to the Lord Jesus. And Father, by your Spirit, may you change and shape us that we might live for him always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the times that can be quite challenging uh, for a country uh, is when there is a significant change in leadership. Uh, now, you might be thinking, okay, we're going to start talking about Australian politics or something like that. Uh, but actually, I think this is a good time for us to be really thankful uh, for the country that we live in, right? With all the things going on down in Canberra, well, we can be thankful to God that we still live in a relatively peaceful and stable place, right? Particularly when you compare well, our country to countries around the world. And particularly when you compare our country now to the past, right? See, particularly back in the ancient world when there was a change in leadership, you know, the death of a king or whatever it was, uh, so often this would throw the country into turmoil. There would be conflict and bloodshed and wars. And as we come to the book of Judges, well, it's the context of the ancient world. This is much closer to the part of the Bible that we're reading. And so today, as we come to the end of Gideon and the rise of Abimelech, well, we might expect that things, well, may not go as smoothly as we might hope. Uh, and that's the story going to see played out for us uh, tonight as we look at these two chapters together. But before we get into the details of the story, it's worth just kind of remembering uh, the pattern that we've already seen in the book of Judges, right? Sometimes called the, the Judges Cycle. Uh, the way it works is there is a time of peace. So God's people, the nation of Israel, they're living in the land, things seem to be going well. But then, well, they fall into sin, right? Usually the sin of idolatry. And because of their sin, there's an act of judgment by God. Uh, usually he hands them over to some foreign nation and they're oppressed. And then because of this, well, God's people, they cry out for help. And so God, because he is gracious, will sends a, a rescuer he rescues his people. Again, there's a time of peace, and so the cycle begins again, right? So this is what we've already seen in the story of Gideon, right? Previously, we looked at this last week. There was a time of peace in the land, but the people, well, they rebel. How? Well, they begin to worship the Baals. And so because of their sin, God hands them over to the Midianites, who oppress them harshly. And so the people, they cry out for help. And then through Gideon, well, God in His kindness rescues His people, right? And that's what we saw last week, right? The great story of Gideon and, well, how God rescued His people. And so now that the battle is over, the Midianites have been defeated, we're expecting there will be a time of peace in the land. And actually, we do see that in the passage. If you remember from our reading, chapter 8, verse 28, we read these words, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and they were no longer a threat. The land was peaceful 40 years during the days of Gideon, right? So we do get there. We do get to the time of peace, 
But you'll notice actually there's a few interesting things happen before we get there. And so we're going to pick up the story in verse 22. So look there, chapter 8, verse 22, the Israelites come to Gideon and they say, rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. Now there's something really kind of obviously wrong with the Israelites or with what they say at this point, right? One, if you noticed it, they say, Gideon, for you delivered us, right? Now, I mean, in one sense, that's true. It was through Gideon that the Midianites were defeated. But if you think back to the story last week, right, do you remember what happened? Gideon, he started out with 22,000 men. God said, that's too many, right? So they go down to 10,000. Then God again says, that's too many. So they end up with 300, right? And it's by 300 men that Gideon defeats this huge army of the Midianites. Now, what was the reason for this? Well, the reason was so that Israel would not brag, so they would not think that they had done it alone. And yet, as we come to the verse before us, it seems that they have forgotten that lesson, because they come to Gideon and they say, Gideon, you are the one who rescued us, so we want you and your family to be rulers over us. You can see how they want to put their security and their safety, well, in the family of Gideon, in human leaders. And we see what just a mistake this is in, in what happens next, right? Gideon replies to them. He says, well, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you because the Lord will rule over you, right? And Gideon rightfully recognizes, right, that the Lord God, He is the one who saved His people. He is the one who is the true King over His people. And so it's right for Gideon to say that his son it's not like the rule should just pass on to him, like the, the kings of the nations around them. No, the Lord is the one who rules, and He is the one who chooses the leaders for His people. But then with that in mind, well, it's worth just reflecting on the first thing that Gideon says, right? He says to the people, I will not rule over you. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Gideon was a judge, right? This was God's appointed leader over His people, and you think, well, hang on, isn't part of his job description to lead his people? Isn't part of his job to lead his people in being faithful to Yahweh? But Gideon says here, I will not rule over you. But what's also interesting is even though he says that, well, the very next thing that's recorded for us, I mean, it seems to be an act of leadership, right? He says to all the people, he says, let me make a request of you, right? Everyone give me an earring from his plunder, Right now, when Gideon asked for these kind of gold earrings, we're meant to see that this, this is bad news, right? If you think back of the history of God's people, back in the Exodus, God had just rescued His people out of slavery in Egypt, right? Dramatically passing through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness, and uh, Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. There, he's going to get the, the law. And what happens while they've gone, while Moses is gone? Well, Aaron and the people, they get a bit bored, waiting. Gee, Moses, he's taking a long time. And so Aaron says to the people, give me your gold earrings, and he makes a golden calf. And he says to the people, here is Yahweh, here is the God who rescued you out of Egypt. And Moses, well, he comes down the mountain, and you can see he's, well, he's quite angry, 
at how quickly God's people has turned away from Him. And so, as we come back to the story of Gideon, as we see Gideon asking the people for gold earrings, right, this, this is a bad sign, right, what's he going to do with this? Well, Gideon doesn't make a golden calf, thankfully, but verse 27, what he does do is he makes an ephod from all the things that have been given and he puts it in Ophrah, his hometown. Now, what's an ephod? Uh, well, again, we need to sort of look back in the Old Testament to understand the background. Right Back in the Old Testament, the way that God had set things up was that they, well, God's people would relate to Him through the priests, right? So, you kind of had God, the King, the people, and in the middle were the priests, right? They were selected from among the people to represent God to the people. And as part of being a priest, well, they had some special clothes, and this is kind of uh, described in Exodus 28, they had lots of different things to wear and part of what they had to wear was an ephod, kind of like a, a tunic that they would uh, wear and then on top of the ephod they would put this kind of gold breastplate, that's the bit with the kind of the precious uh, stones which are, which are put in there. All right, and so we come to Gideon, he decides from the, the things that are given to him to make this ephod. And as we see Gideon do this, it's kind of, well, it's a bit hard to know what to make of this. I mean, if we read Gideon charitably, right, perhaps he has good intentions here. Remember, he's just said, Yahweh, the Lord, He is the one who rules over you. So perhaps Gideon, he's, I mean, at least he's made something from the Old Testament, that's a good start, right? Perhaps a reminder for the people that the Lord is the one who rules. But even if Gideon did have good intentions with this, we see that there are negative consequences, right? Verse 27 again, so Gideon makes the ephod, he puts it in Ophrah, and then all Israel prostituted themselves with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So we can see this ephod that he sets up becomes a snare. And I guess one of the big questions we need to ask as we come to this passage, is this decision then of Gideon to make the ephod, was it an act of sin? Right? Was it ungodly? Did Gideon do the wrong thing in setting up this ephod? It's something worth thinking about. But as we think about it, it's really important to know what Gideon doesn't do at this point. Right? See, what Gideon doesn't do isn't rebuild the altar to Baal. Right? Remember back in his youth, he was in Ophrah and he destroyed the altar to the Baal. So it's not like Gideon is in full-blown idolatry here. He doesn't re-establish the Asherah pole that he's burnt in his youth either. No, Gideon's described as a, a hero of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I think we're meant to see him as one who was faithful to God and to the end. And so when it comes to this decision of making the ephod, well, I don't know, is it sin, is it ungodliness? But at the very least, we see it was unwise, it was a foolish decision because it became a snare for Gideon and for those around him. And so as we just sort of stop and reflect on this chapter as Christians, it's worth just seeing the warning here that we need to be very careful about the decisions that we make. For us as Christians, there are things that we can decide to do which are not necessarily sin, but could rightfully be described as unwise Right? And as unwise decisions, they can bring serious consequences well, for ourselves and for others. So I'll give you an example of, well, an unwise decision. I think it's probably fair to say not many of you would choose to make an ephod, right? 
if you do, don't, it's a bad idea, right? But perhaps a more, uh, a more likely example, you know, take for example the way that we use our time. I mean, one of the things that's a great thing to do is to spend time reading the Bible and praying, right? But if we make unwise decisions in the way that we use our time, then we can neglect that. Now, it's not necessarily a, a sinful thing to do, not necessarily ungodly, but you can see how those unwise decisions can lead to serious consequences. It can mean that we stop listening to God. And I think, of course, that's the, the error of Gideon, that he stopped listening to God. Rather than thinking about how God wanted His people to relate to Him, it seems that Gideon had a better idea of setting up this ephod in Ophrah. Or I'll give you another example of an unwise decision, right? As Christians, we need to decide how many things we commit to, how many things that we, well, put into our lives. And sometimes, as Christians, we can be unwise in this. Sometimes we can make our lives too busy. Now, those decisions, they're not necessarily ungodly, but you can see how they can lead to serious consequences. Uh, it can lead to someone or failing to meet with God's people. Ultimately, it can lead to them rejecting Jesus Himself. Or to give another example, right, as Christians, we can be unwise in the way that we relate to members of the opposite sex, right? There's a particular person, perhaps, that we're unwise in the amount of time that we spend talking to them, unwise in the things that we talk to them about, right? Not necessarily ungodly in and of themselves, and yet we can see how they can lead to serious consequences, how they can lead to serious sin in our lives. The point is, is that we need to be very careful about the way that we live, right? We need to watch our life and doctrine closely. I think it's very rare that just kind of out of the blue, one day a Christian kind of wakes up and says, you know what, today's the day I'm going to reject Jesus. Much more likely is that decision comes after a series of unwise decisions, right? The person makes decisions that moves them further and further away from the truth until one day they wake up, not really out of the blue, but they wake up and say, today is the day that I will reject Jesus. Right? We cannot be naive here. If Gideon makes foolish decisions, right, the hero of faith, well, we shouldn't think that we are immune. We have to recognise that it's perseverance to the end what counts. But while it's really important to see the decisions that we make can have consequences for ourselves, we also need to recognise they can have implications for those around us. Right? And you see this in the story of Gideon. His decision to make an ephod, right, it became a snare for him, but did you notice it also becomes a snare for his household? It becomes a snare for all of Israel. And in fact, the, the generation that follows Gideon, well, they are the ones who wander into full-blown idolatry. Now, it's important to say, I mean, those people are still responsible, right? Gideon's family, Israel, they were responsible for the lives that they lived. But you can see in the story that in some ways, Gideon's actions had an influence over them, perhaps even encouraged them into the sin of idolatry. And I think this is really important for us as Christians to recognise. 
Because it is possible that for us as a Christian, we can make a series of unwise decisions that don't necessarily mean that we are not a Christian, but it can impact those around us. Right? Whether we choose to or not, we are an example to those around us. The life that we live influences our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to be very careful of how we walk and recognise that our example to others, well, it can have a negative influence on them, perhaps leading them into sin or perhaps leading them to reject Jesus. But while it's important to see the possible negative consequence, right, the flip side is also true. See, for us as Christians, well, we can be a good example to those around us, right? As we live a life committed to Jesus, well, that can be an encouragement to others, right? They can see our lives and be encouraged themselves to persevere into the end, right? One of the things that I've noticed, I, I've got three kids, right? So, uh, James, Emily, Sarah, right? Aged. <laughs> Hang on. That was the easy bit, right? aged seven, five, and three. Okay, so I've got three kids. And uh, one of the things that I've, one of the things I've noticed uh, about them is the way that they look up to the people who are just a little bit older than them, right? So who do my kids want to be like? They want to be like the kids in upper primary. They want to be like the kids in high school. They want to be like, they want to be like, sorry, their kids' church leaders, that's one of the things that I'm so thankful for to be part of a church family. Right? As I want my kids to grow up knowing Jesus, it's such a wonderful blessing to know that there are people in our church family who are in that age group who they can look up to, who can be a positive example of them of what it means to follow Jesus. And I hope that's a real encouragement for you, right? To recognize that you have the potential to influence and encourage others. I mean, if you are a kids' church leader, if you're a kids' church leader at 9am, <laughs> you need to watch your life and doctrine closely, right? You need to understand that there are people looking up to you. There are people who want to be like you, who see you and say, this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. But of course, it doesn't just apply if you're a kids' church leader, it applies to all of us, all of us has the opportunity of encouraging our brothers and sisters to persevere into the end by living lives that are committed to Jesus. But let's come back then to the story of Gideon. We see that for Gideon, while he's, you know, a hero of faith, well, a disappointing end to his story as he makes this ephod that becomes a snare for him and for others. But then what we see in the story is after the death of Gideon, well, things very quickly take a turn for the worse. Right, verse 33, when Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves with the Baals and made Baal Bereith their God. And you can see there's kind of two parts to what they do. Firstly, they reject God, but notice also verse 35, they reject the family of Gideon. And that's really what we see sort of played out in chapter 9 as we pick up the story of Abimelech. Now, Abimelech's one of the sons of Gideon. We kind of meet him very briefly in, uh, in chapter 8. Uh, and he lives in the town, or he's sort of from the town of Shechem. So you can see on the map, that's uh, Shechem there, and that's Ophrah. Ophrah is the hometown of uh, Gideon. Uh, Gideon, we read before, had many wives and 70 sons. 
Uh, but he also had this concubine as well, who lives in the town of Shechem, uh, and who, well, bears a son whom is named uh, Abimelech. And so, what happens after Gideon's death is Abimelech goes to his mother's family in the town of Shechem. He says, verse 2, Please speak in the presence of all the lords of Shechem. Is it better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, that's Gideon, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Now, it's hard to know in verse 2, is Abimelech suggesting the 70 sons of Gideon, they were seeking to rule over Israel, perhaps, you know, contrary to the wishes of Gideon. Uh, Hard to know, I think. But what is very clear is that Abimelech, he is the one, well, who wants to be the one who rules over these people. And so he goes to the town of Shechem seeking their support. They agree to help him. They go to their idolatrous temple, they get 70 silver pieces of silver, and then Abimelech hires this uh, band of ruffigans, and then he goes to Ophrah, and in a rather dark moment, he goes and kills his 70 half-brothers, the sons of Gideon, on top of a large stone. Right, it's a terrible act of murder, isn't it, by Abimelech? But notice verse 5, there is one son who survives, right? The youngest, Jotham, he hides and survives, well, the murder of Abimelech. Now, Abimelech doesn't know this at this point. So, verse 6, all the lords of Shechem and Beth Milo. Uh, Beth Milo could sort of be part of uh, Shechem or perhaps another town. Uh, But they uh, gather together, verse 6, and they make Abimelech king at the oak of the pillar in Shechem. Seems probably just king of uh, sort of Shechem at this point, but if you scan down to verse 22, you see Abimelech rules over all Israel for three years. So it seems that his rule expands over all of God's people. But coming back to, well, Jotham, remember he was the son who survived. In verse 7, he hears the kind of news that Abimelech's been made king, and so he climbs up to the top of this mountain, Mount Gerizim. So if we go back to our map for a minute, you can see near Shechem, there's two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, that kind of uh, are next to it. Uh, interestingly, these are the, uh, the mountains that represent the blessing and the curse in Deuteronomy, right? Mount Ebal was the mountain that reminded the curses of not fulfilling the covenant. Mount Gerizim represented the blessing. But it's on Mount Gerizim then, the, the, the mountain of blessing, well, that Jotham brings this curse But before he gets to the curse, he has this kind of interesting parable or story, Uh, and it's a story about trees, right? Look there, verse 8, this is Jotham's uh, story. Verse 8, the trees set out to anoint a king over themselves. So they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, well, should I stop giving my oil that honours both God and man and rule over the trees? Right, so they come to the olive tree, the olive tree says, look, no, I don't want to be your king because I'm too busy making olive oil, right? So the trees, well, they don't give up, they go to the fig tree, they say, come and rule over us, the fig tree says, no, I'm too busy making figs. So the trees, they go to the grapevine, they say, come and rule over us, the grapevine says, no, I'm too busy making wine. So verse 14, finally, all the trees said to the bramble bush, come and reign over us. Now, if you think about the bramble, like a blackberry bush, it's not a particularly attractive kind of plant, right? It's a weed, kind of thing that spikes and scratches you, and you kind of get the sense that they're really kind of scraping the barrel by coming to the bramble. And of course, the implication with Abimelech just being made king 
is you can see that Jotham is well, not particularly favourable about their choice. But actually, the real point of the parable comes clear in verse 15. And it's helpful, I think, to look at the ESV translation at this point, so you can see it up on the screen, right? Remember the trees, they come to the bramble and say, come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So the key question then for the trees is have they acted in good faith by asking the bramble to be their king? And the point as applied to the lords of Shechem and Beth Milo, well, verse 16, if you have acted faithfully, if you have acted in good faith and in honesty in making Abimelech king, if you have done well by Jeroboam and his family, and if you have rewarded him appropriately for what he did... And skipping down to verse 19, he says, if you have done those things, if you've acted in good faith, well, may you rejoice in Abimelech and may he also rejoice in you. Right, he says, if you've acted in good faith, great, go well. But, verse 20, if not, if you have not acted in good faith, well, may fire come from Abimelech and consume the lords of Shechem and Beth Milo. And may fire come from the lords of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Now, of course, we all know that they haven't acted in good faith. No, we remember the murder of the 70 or maybe 69 brothers or sorry, the sons of Gideon earlier in the story. And so we see that this curse then of Jotham, well, that's really what's kind of played out in the rest of the chapter. Now, we won't have time to sort of look at all the details of the story. I'd love for you to go home and read it. Uh, it's a pretty kind of, well, interesting story, I guess, a pretty, pretty sad story. Uh, what happens is that the lords of Abimelech, they recruit this guy, Gaal, to uh, lead a rebellion. Uh, he agrees, they kind of stage this kind of revolt. Uh, Abimelech's out of town, and uh, so Abimelech hears about it through his friend Zebul. Uh, Abimelech comes with kind of his army to the town of Shechem, and uh, Gaal is sort of standing at the city with Zebul, the kind of the mayor of the town. And uh, Gaal says, you know, I think, I think that's an army coming towards me. And Zebul, he says, no, 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 it's just, just shadows, right, in the early morning. And then Gaal's like, you know, are you, are you sure? It really looks like an army. And at that point, Zebul's like, yes, it is. It's Abimelech and he's going to come and destroy you. Uh, and it seems this kind of act of delaying Gaal gives Abimelech the upper hand. And tragically, Abimelech, well, he comes in, he defeats Gaal, the army, and then he levels Shechem, right, destroying all the inhabitants. People are hiding up in this tower. So what does Abimelech do? He gathers wood, he puts it around the base and sets it on fire. And we see it's a really kind of tragic end to this city and this kind of, you know, infighting or civil war amongst God's people. But then we pick up the story in verse 50. Abimelech goes to a town of Thebes, I'm not really sure where that is or why Abimelech goes there. Perhaps they were in league with Shechem. Perhaps Abimelech just wants to kill some more people. But he goes there, he camps against it and captured it. Similar things happen, that the people go and hide in a tower. Abimelech tries his, well, the same trick, putting wood around the base to set it on fire. But look there, verse 53. But a woman threw the upper portion of a millstone on Abimelech's head and fractured his skull. That's a pretty kind of well, gruesome detail. 
But we see this is the end of Abimelech. If you remember early in the story, he'd, well, he'd murdered the, the sons of Gideon on one large stone. Well, here Abimelech meets his end by a stone dropped by this unnamed woman from the top of the tower. And so you can see verse 55, when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. Right, that's kind of the conclusion to the story. But what are we to make then of this chapter? Why is it given to us in the Scriptures? Well, we don't need to guess because actually the point is given for us in verse 56. Right, verse 56, in this way God turned back on Abimelech the evil he'd done against his father by killing his 70 brothers. And God also returned all the evil of the men of Shechem on their heads. So the course of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. So we see then, Judges chapter 9, it's a pretty straightforward point, right? It's a story of divine retribution, of God bringing back the evil of Abimelech and the Lord's back upon them through their death. And as we see this kind of theme, it's, I mean, it's not hard to see the link to the New Testament, is it? And we read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 before, and the, the promise of God's judgment, that God is the one who will hold people to account for their evil. Now we know, of course, this, this justice of God, it doesn't necessarily come in our lifetime like it did for Abimelech and the Lord's, right? It may be that it waits until the end. Sometimes it seems like the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. But what we know and are sure of as Christians is that God's justice will come. On the day that Christ returns, all people will be held to account. And this is meant to be a comfort for us. Right? As we look out on our world, as we see evil go unchecked, as we see it on a large scale in our world, as we see it in the people around us, what we know and are certain of is that God will hold people to account that God will not allow evil to be unchecked, but that His perfect and just judgment will come. And so the encouragement for us then as Christians is to look forward to that day. As we see the state of our world, well, we long for the day that Jesus will return. We long for the day of that justice. And so we pray then, we pray that Jesus will come back soon. We pray that this day will come. So how about I lead us in prayer then and pray that Jesus will come back soon. Our Father, we thank You that You are just. We thank You and praise You that You are righteous. We praise you that you will hold all things to account. Father, as we see evil reign in our world, we long for the day that Jesus will return. We long for the day of your justice. We pray then as your people that day would come soon. And yet, Father, as we think of the promise of your judgment, well, Father, we're reminded of our own sin. We know that well, by nature, we deserve to face your judgment. And so, Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to come into our world, to die on the cross in our place, 
to bring the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Father, we pray that as your people, we would turn to Jesus, that we might trust in him and know the joy that our sin has been forgiven. We pray that we would persevere unto the end. Please strengthen us by your spirit. We pray that we would be committed to following Jesus this day and to the end of our life. And Father, we pray that we might be a wonderful example to those around us. Father, we pray that you might use us in your kindness, that you might use us to encourage those around us, that together we might serve you for your glory. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.